This is where things get complicated when we get to 2 Peter. If you read your Bible every so often and you only go to church once a week or so, you might be shocked to read one day about how the Bible was actually put together. It wasn't like God nudged Peter one day and said, Peter, today uh, you're going to write a book that I'm going to dictate to you. So sit up straight, take this down. That's the way, basically, I thought the Bible was written when I was growing up. And the more I began to find out how it was really written, the more disturbed I got. Until, as several doctors have told me, now I'm completely disturbed. And I, no, they have not told me that. They've told Cammy. They, um, about me. Uh, the, the point being, the Bible being written is a much more complex and amazing story than dictating to secretaries named Peter and John and Luke. Now this fall, I'm, I think I'm going to do a, a class on that uh, for those that are interested in how the Bible came together. But in the meantime, just know it's not as simple as we make it out to be. This week and later when we look at Jude, we're going to be dealing with two of the more troublesome books in the New Testament about how we got them and why the early church hallowed them enough to put them into the canon of Scripture. Uh, by the way, Chris Whitney will be here next Sunday about one generation away, and he'll be preaching as well. And that's, Chris is one of our favorite people, and one generation away is one of our favorite works that we do here. So make sure you're here to encourage him. First of all, here's where we start with the complications. It's hard to find a New Testament scholar who thinks Peter wrote Second Peter. I'll give you a moment to breathe. It doesn't mean it's not Scripture. The first two centuries were very different worlds than ours. They had very different rules about how to do things than we do. They had schools of Peter and schools of Paul that would write in the style of Peter and write in the, the style of or in the, in the um, flowing with the arguments of Paul. In fact, if you remember, if you've been following along as you've been reading Scripture, there are times that Paul says, you can tell by this signature, it was really me that wrote this one. You know, and sometimes you'll even say, don't accept it unless you see this signature on it. Well, there were schools that, uh, in fact, as soon as Paul started preaching, people started writing books in the, uh, in the style of Paul. Now, I can't go up to somebody and tell them that, you know, I've written a book here. And then, you know, they, they say, well, you know, what's the name on the book? And I'll say, Max Lucado. I can't do that. That would get me in a lot of trouble. However, it would not have in the first couple of centuries. If you're writing after his style and you're writing in agreement with him, you could put his name on it. And it was not considered fraud. It was just considered, in fact, a tribute to him. Almost like tribute bands are that go along and, you know, we're going to be singing the songs of and we're going to be doing it in their style. Well, whoever wrote this book is not the same as whoever wrote First Peter. Now, I'm going to spare you the, the book-length reasons why. Just give you a few reasons. One, they use different terms. When Peter, First Peter talks about the return of Christ, he calls it a parousia, a coming. Second Peter calls it an apocalypse. Uh, never calls it a, com a coming. In First Peter, he calls himself Peter. Second Peter, he calls himself Simon. Again, very different. First Peter, very Jewish in thought. Second Peter, completely from start to finish Hellenistic, Greek, in its phrasing, its logic, its use of language. First Peter, very simple, very elegant. 
Second Peter, very grandiose, very elaborate. We could go on, but there's no real reason for it. There were a series of books actually written in the style of Peter that were rejected for inclusion into Scripture. For example, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Peter, First and Second Clement, and the Shepherd of Hermas. But this one was brought in. It was hallowed by the early church. It is known, Second Peter is a form, a literary form, known to linguists and historians as a testament. Now, not like New Testament, Old Testament, but kind of, in that it's a well-known Jewish genre of a dying hero giving last-minute instructions to those who have followed him. One of the people thought to have written it, by the way, is Peter's secretary, secretary, and uh, that gives it some weight, as it certainly did with the early people, uh, the people of the early church. I view it as a very important book. I view it as, and I hallow it as scripture, and I think you should too. Just be aware that our story is more complicated than sometimes we let on. Before we look at a passage from 1 Peter, I want you to cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden. The devil's great lie there was effective, and it still is. And the whole lie is God is holding out on you. God's not giving you what you deserve. You deserve more. Now, if there's a person in this room that has not heard that lie, I would be shocked because normally we hear it all the time. You deserve more love from your spouse. You deserve a better home. You deserve a better car. You deserve a better presidential candidate. You deserve uh, a, a clear, you know, uh, the removal of orange barrels on your road. You deserve, you know, but, but again, you also deserve roads with no potholes. There's a little problem there. But we deserve more than what we have. We deserve more, and we hear that all the time. You need more. God is not supplying your needs. And the author of 2 Peter knew that many of the early Christians were struggling with Jesus not returning yet. They were struggling with the persecutions that were coming their way. They were struggling with their poverty and the bad guys having so much. So he starts the book out this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, just think about this for a minute. Everything you need to live a godly life, you've got. Maybe not everything you need to live a comfortable life, a life without struggle. I was praying during the communion time, talking to God, saying, I'd like to apologize to you because it seems that half of my prayers at communion time are, thank you that Jesus suffered for me. Make sure I don't have to suffer for him. We tend to say, I'd like to be comfortable now. I'd like to not have the persecution. He says, no, you've got everything you need to be godly. How? Because you know Jesus. Verse 4, through these, this glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You're going to be like Jesus, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. One of the first things we have to do if we want to live godly lives, if we want to be on holy ground, and if we want to be holy ground, is to get rid of evil desires. That would mean revenge fantasies in your head. 
That would remain, that would mean an awful lot of the nastiness in our head that sometimes leaks out on social media. It means we're going to have to get rid of evil desires. That's the first thing the devil went for because he knows it works in every generation and in every heart. A family came up to me when we were working in Michigan, and they said, You're always, you and the shepherds are always telling us we need to, need to be like Jesus, so we need to do well and do good in the planet. He says, but we don't really know when we're doing good. And they used an illustration that I thought was brilliant. They said, it's like we're bowling, but there's a curtain over the pens, so we never really know how we're doing. And I said, you know, that's very fair. That's an excellent comment. So let's think about what our bowling pens should be. And we gave it thought. We didn't jump at this. We gave it thought. And we came up with connect, grow, and serve every day. Am I connecting somebody to Jesus, or am I connecting them to each other? Am I growing any way toward the Lord this day? And have I served anybody in the name of Jesus today? That has been 15, 16 years ago now, and still almost every night I think about this. Connect, grow, and serve. What, what, what did I do? Did I miss one of the pens today? And frankly, I do. I miss pens. And I'll have to say, Father, tomorrow I want to pick up the spear. I, w- I want to do this well. Help me out. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to you, know, you gave me opportunities. I didn't see them. By the way, I never pray anymore. God, open doors of opportunity. Because I've learned in my life, those doors are standing open. What we need are eyes to see them. And so get to, let me see the pens. Now, your pens may be different than that. You might have a better set than that. But the fact is, we need pens. And so Peter sets up some pens in chapter 1. Let's look at those, verses 5 through 8. For this very reason, here are your pens. And they're progressive pens, by the way. Add to your faith, and faith is the first pen. Then goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to that, perseverance, means stick with it. The next one, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they are progressive, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to ask you a real quick question. How many, you don't need to raise your hands because you're church of Christ and that's a bit upsetting to you. How many of us go to church, go to church, go to church, go to church, but feel unproductive and ineffective? in our faith perhaps it's because we've not set up the pens we've asked God for us to do okay today but we've not given him any specifics about what we're aiming for and prayer needs to be specific and there are times I'll look over Peter's list there and go got that one got that one got that one Ooh, (laughs) I've not been doing that one I need to aim at that pen I need to work a little bit better so if nothing else when you read 2nd Peter Chapter 1, look at those pins, set them up, print them out, and put them over your doorpost that when you, or on the dashboard of your, of your car so that whenever you're, you're, you're going out in the morning or you're doing whatever you're doing, you see the pins you need to be aiming at, whether it's Connect, Grow, Serve, or whether it's these pins. And when I say progressive, what I mean is this. A lot of people want to start with love. You can't do love until you start with faith and goodness and knowledge and work your way through. So if love has been a real struggle for you, perhaps it's because you got hung up on an earlier pen. So go back there and look for those. You know, at night, talk to God. 
about it. I didn't do that last night. Last night, I had, there were two weddings, and it was a long day. And for the first time in my life, I know a lot of people do this every day. First time in my life, I fell asleep in my chair. I went home. I had plans. <laughs> I had, you know, that DVR is not going to watch itself, people. So I, I, I had plans. Sat down. The next thing I know, my wife's waking me up. It's 10 o'clock. And I'm thinking, you're a clock now? What? Uh, and then, then you know, no, I was asleep. I didn't realize that. This morning, my five-hour energy lasted 20 minutes. I, I, I get it. So when it, it, maybe night's not for you. Maybe the morning's when you set up your pens and talk to God. But whenever it is, talk to him. Especially if you're feeling unproductive. I love what he does next, by the way. In, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he tells him, I know I'm repeating myself. I know I'm telling you what you already know. And sometimes we need to be reminded of what we already know. Let me take you back to, I first came back to America back in the mid-80s, late 80s. And the church that I landed at there, a long story of that, we'll, we'll pass on that. Um, they loved golf. Now, I had come from Scotland. They were very excited. I didn't like golf. I thought it was a silly game. Never played it. I walked St. Andrews all the time. It was a public place. And yet, I thought, you know, why would you spend all that time and money to get the ball in a hole just to pick it up again? You know, that seems a waste of time. And so I never really did any. I never had any interest in it. They, the elders had their meetings on a golf course, which I heartily endorse, by the way, shepherds, if you'd like to know. And they handed me clubs. And they said, we're going to go have our meeting. And I'm thinking, what kind of meetings do you have if you need 14 you know, clubs to, to whack each other. Um, went out, and I, I've, I learned to fall in love with the game, but I'd only played a couple of times on a par three, till they, and then they announced to me, every year the church has a scramble. I thought, that must be some sort of American term for breakfast. Or, and they, No, no, it's a golf thing. And the whole church comes out, and we want you to play with us, and we want you to, to lead us off that day. And I'm going, I've only played a couple times. I don't know what to do here. But I, I got lucky because somebody died, and I had a funeral. Now, hang on, hang on. I'm allowed to have thoughts, too. So I made the mistake, though, of driving past the golf course to see how things were going, and they were waiting on me. And I got out. I was in a suit. And they said, that's all right. I said, I didn't bring any clubs. They handed me some. And they put me up in front. Now, the whole church is standing there making comments, which they have every right to do at this stage. And I hit the ball, and it, and it went basically where I needed it to go. And later, some people came up to me, and they said, how in the world did you maintain your, con your, your concentration and actually do a swing? And, and I said, what was the truth? When I was looking at the ball, I was saying in my head, no matter where this goes, or even if it goes, Jesus loves me. <laughs> Peter says, sometimes you need to stop and just remind yourself of what you know. What do you know? Now, that's really important because when the devil says, you're not getting what you need, you're, the devil, the God's, hold, God's holding out on you. You're not getting everything you need for your happy life. You need to stop every so often and say, what do I know? And you might find out that what you know drives the devil back. What do you know? Remember the parable, can't even speak now, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. He had to stop in the pig pen and remind himself of what he knew. In my father's house, there's room, and he always fed us, 
and he always loved me. What am I doing in a pig pen? I've had that discussion with myself a few times. Perhaps you've had that with yourself. If we keep our hope and our faith alive, if we believe even in the darkness, Peter says that in verse 19, a morning star will eventually arise in our hearts. But then a quick warning is issued in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And it says, Scripture needs to be interpreted by the community. Now that's important. We have 2 Peter because the community said that book's important. It has enough validity that we believe it is what Peter wanted us to, to have, even if Peter himself did not write it. And so it was put in there. I accept what the community says. If ever you read on the internet or a book or a speaker comes through and tells you that they have found something new and terribly important in Scripture, be very careful. For there is nothing new and true in religion. If it's true, it isn't new. And if it's new, it isn't true. You need the community to back you up. You need the community to say, let's all look at this passage. Let's see what this passage says. And not just our community. You need all the tribes of believers to chime in on something before we can agree this is what God wants. Because if our little group does it, how do you know that our little group is right? Take it to the larger group. What do they say? Take it to a larger group. What do they say? Not so we can explain away anything, but so that we get out of it strong personalities who seem to always know what they're talking about. Let's get it to the group. What does the group say? Even Peter and Paul, I'm sorry, even Paul and the early apostles, when they were struggling with an issue, took it to the group in Acts 15. They brought it to the elders in Jerusalem and to the assembly of the churches there and said, here is where we're standing. Here's where they stand. What is the truth? And Paul didn't say, I'm an apostle. Shut this down. I'll tell you. He brought it to the group. And he says, no scripture is a private interpretation. You, you got you to gotta let the group, because if you don't, you get divisions. You get cults. In chapter 2, chapter 2 is really important especially for us, our particular religious tribe, because it tells you what a false teacher is. In my life, I grew up with almost everybody being labeled a false teacher. They were false because they disagreed with the way we did communion, or they were false because they did baptism a different way, or they were false because they used religious words in a different way, or they were false, and it, it was very easy to be a false teacher, frankly, uh, to get that labeling. I just looked down, saw Sue. Hi, Sue. Sue Brinker's back. Yay. I'll, I'll wrap this up pretty soon so that you don't have to sit there after back surgery. Poor girl. And Lydia's there too. And I, you know, I, I got to, Roy, you guys are going to make me skip a few of the nice points here. Anyway, um, I can remember, one of my first memories was being taken to a lectureship in the U.S., I don't even know which, I think it was probably Lipscomb. Might have been Harding at the time, I don't know. But I can remember the arguments and the fighting over the new songbook. And one man, his, his face was red and he was yelling and I was a bit, I was terrified. He might get loose. 
I, I didn't know if there was a great golf or alligators or something, but if not, he could get to me. And he was holding up a, a songbook called Great Songs of the Church, and he screamed, what church? And he threw it. Why? Had a couple songs he disagreed with. Just a little talk with Jesus made it right. Oh, no, it isn't. It's a lot more complicated than that. Well, sometimes just a little talk makes it right. <laughs> you know, but it, it, he was angry. I come to the garden alone. No, you don't. You have to be with the church or you're doomed. You know, all this sort of thing. He would then, so false teaching. Well, chapter 2 of Second Peter tells us what false teaching is, and that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it at all. Take a look at the characteristics of false teachers. They secretly introduce destructive divisions or heresies. That's what heresies mean. It doesn't mean that your doctrine is not perfect. It means that you divide people. Denying Jesus. Not a song in our book denies Jesus. Depraved conduct. I don't know of anybody, our people called false, that, was, that had depraved conduct. Greed. Bold. Arrogant. Even exalting themselves above the angels. I'll, I'll stand here while you make a list of false teachers who exalted themselves above the angels. Not many, right? Bold, arrogant, wow. Eyes full of adultery. Cult leaders absolutely do all of these things. Do they not? They'll even say, I am God, or I am the Messiah, or I will tell you what God means, and all the, all the girls belong to me. That's eyes full of adultery. Cult leaders. Seducing the unstable. You see that in TV preachers that get widows' social security checks. Experts in greed. They appeal to the lust of the flesh. That's what the Bible calls a false teacher. Told you this story before. I'm going to make it really quick. We used to, to raise and rescue parrots. Um, I told that story to a church in East Tennessee. And at, at a dinner after, one of the deacons was looking at me and says, so you have parrots? And I said, well, I have one, but we work with others. And he said, well, isn't it ill? And I, I froze. I had... You know, I don't know who would start a rumor that my bird was sick. Um, and so we went back and forth for a while before I found out that in East Tennessee, ill means bad-tempered. And he was embarrassed by that time, and so was I, that we were not, were not able to communicate. Um, but we finally got it. Well, ill meant something different to them. Well, friends, in Shakespeare, when you read of somebody being called a hussy, it means that they're a housewife. It doesn't mean that now. And gentlemen, do not kid about it <laughs> later. <laughs> Say, hello, Shakespeare would call you. Don't, because he would have some words for you too. The worst word he could think of to call somebody was mischievous, because that was the same as being devil-possessed and evil. You don't, that's not what it means to us. Words change meaning. When the Bible talks about a false teacher, it's talking about that kind of person, not somebody that disagrees with us on what kind of clothes to wear while they're preaching. And we need, we need to sort that out as a body and get over it and just focus on Jesus. It's clear that this isn't speaking to somebody who disagrees with us on baptism or church organization or how to sing on a Sunday. These are people that twist the scriptures to take advantage of other people and start a cult and lead them off a cliff. Well, Peter calls upon the early believers to remember what they know and then live that way. They're not to look upon Jesus delaying his return as a sign that it's not going to happen, but as a sign that the Lord loves us. We're going to read this, and then I want to talk to you about this a minute. 
Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When I was a boy, the preachers would preach. By the way, I'm not making fun of any of these people because everything they taught me, they taught me out of the sincerity of their heart. And they're going to be in heaven too. We're all going to be surprised. Uh, you know, they're going to be surprised at me. I'll be surprised at them, but it'll be a great day. They would say, the Lord could come back before this sermon ends. And I'm thinking, well, yeah. Um, way to stack the odds in your favor. I was, I was not an easy kid to raise. That's a bit of a shock, but there it is. I don't want God to come back soon. Why? Because there are too many people lost. We, we're, having, we're burying more people in the ground than we are in the waters of baptism. More people are being born in a hospital than born of the Spirit. I want us to get ahead of the curve before Jesus comes back. I'm not okay with these people being lost. And God must have the same attitude, by the way, I got it from him, because... He's not coming back fast. Why? I think he wants to reach more. I think he wants to redeem the whole earth. And we're supposed to be a part of that. So remember what you know and live accordingly. I'm going to step away to give you some time to to bring your team up. The team here, and I have to get into my narrow cone, I think. The, the, only, the only angle in which I am welcome, right there. <laughs> All right. I would like to read this passage out of Second Peter chapter 3, if you'll put that up. It will come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, that's what we always focused on when I was a boy, but I want you to focus on what comes next. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? The very things we fight about are all going to go away. So what kind of people should you be? Well, then he answers it. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do you speed the day of the Lord? By redeeming the earth. By redeeming the world. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. That's a Jewish way of saying the world system. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Would you stand with me, please? So, a plane is blown from the sky over the Mediterranean. What should our reaction be? So our political world falls apart and our nation is in peril. What should our reaction be? So our hopes are endangered. A job is lost. A friend dies like one of mine did this week. A child wanders from the faith. What kind of people should we be? Peter answers it. Start by remembering what you know and then live accordingly. Live holy and godly lives right now in the middle of all of this. That's our response. That's our job. That's our calling. And that is enough, for it will change everything.
set up the pens. Remember what you know. May God bless.